Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. This is a really fast-moving story. It's caused a lot of outrage among investors. This is so fascinating. The market shut down in a way it's never done before. That's going to have consequences for years to come. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. Paul and I, Paul and I love these Big Take stories uh, every day, but we have an extra special one today because our editor-in-chief, wrote it. John Micklethwaite joins us. Uh, he wrote this together with Adrian Woolridge, uh, Woldridge, which is The West Must Save Globalization. I highly recommend checking it out on NI Big Take on the Bloomberg or checking it out online. John, great to get you on to talk a little bit about this. One of the things that you um, to posit is that there will be a decoupling here, a, a, a breakup essentially of two, but maybe three different blocks, but that the autocratic block, the Russians and the Chinese, are going to accelerate past our divided democracies. Why do you think that, that they'll do well after this breakup? I th well, I, I go back a bit. I think that the, you know, that there is already a breakup happening. There is a, you know, there is a straightforward decoupling going on, which as you could argue, a mixture between China and Donald Trump started, but I think is only going to be um, increased by what's happening in the Ukraine, because if you are the Chinese, you look and you quite rationally see what has happened to the um, Russians in terms of things like foreign reserves and all those sort of things, and your desire to be self-sustainable, especially if you're considering anything to do with Taiwan, increases. And by the same token, you also see what the, you know, the Americans have also racked up their their desire to decouple. So at the moment, the decoupling, I think, is, is, is ongoing in that direction. I do think one of the problems on the West is it isn't, we're not decoupling into here is China and here is the West. Um, it, at the moment, there aren't enough ties between the, the EU, which seem to be one sort of block, and you've got some version of the US plus NAFTA on the other. So it, it, the Western side of this equation is not well put together. And that's part of the piece is to say, look, this thing is happening geostrategically. The world is now decoupling or, or, or splitting up into these blocks. And business people are thinking about the world in that way. I'm intrigued by how many people I've got emails from this morning saying that's exactly what we're thinking about. And, the, and our point about this piece is really to say to Joe Biden, look, this is your opportunity. You can go to the American people now and say, we have got to cement our relationships with the other democracies around the world. And the best and best way to do that is through trade deals. I watched Gina Raimondo going around Asia last year. And, you know, it was, it was sort of sad. She was out there trying to say, we're all democracies, let's stick together. Mm. Let's have a framework. Um, and, the, and the Asians just looked at her and said, really, what we want is a trade deal. And that's what America was. America wasn't the leader, though. So yep. that's a slightly long-winded um, So, John, uh, it, your question. you know, when President Trump and his administration did the America First strategy that marked seemingly the end or a pause in what had been 70 years of globalization post-war, where 
was that just an aberration those four years? Because as I look at Brussels today, just for example, I see a fairly united West. I see a fairly united NATO. I'm actually optimistic. Or has Trump, was the election of Trump crossing the Rubicon? I mean, is that something that Europe can never really forgive us for? No, I think, well, you know, but we, we also, it wasn't 2016. I mean, I think 2016 was one of several dates um, that you can say that globalization went into reverse. 2016, remember, you, you didn't just have Trump. You also had the British leaving, who in general have been the most free-trading nation in history type thing. You had them leaving the biggest free trade pact in the world, which is the EU. So you also had that. I think you could argue in 2000, arguing slightly against Paul, in, in back when Lehman Brothers happened, you had a slight meltdown in global capitalism. Before that, you had um, Bin Laden in 2001 using the, you know, the very symbols of globalization, jet plane, to attack the World Trade Center. Right. And more recently, we've had COVID. So I, the way I look at it is I think there is a real difference and we have this in the piece. You know, we, we use the famous example that John Maynard Keynes has of a Londoner back in right. 1913. He's sitting there very, very similar to Matt Miller on an average day of his hmm. life in Germany, or, or indeed a Swiss gentleman, you know, sitting there, lying in bed, ordering the goods of the whole world from his expansive mansion somewhere near Frankfurt. And he is ordering every single bit. He's expecting things to show up. He can travel anywhere he likes this Londoner back in 1913. He doesn't need a passport, doesn't need uh, the capital controls. He can use gold sovereigns everywhere. It, it, this is a global world for him. And, and things, thanks to things like the telephone, new technology is making it ever, ever smaller. And he fails to notice at the bottom of his paper these small headlines about Sarajevo. I think the difference between that person who Keynes was really trying to say, look, that was the world we lost, and us is that I, th I think we've been warned fairly continually for the past 20 years that globalization is in trouble, free trade is in trouble. Um, we had Bin Laden, we had Trump, we had um, the Brexit, we had the financial crash, we've had COVID. In many ways, you know, Ukraine is one of those moments where people suddenly take all those things and think this is, this is a big new thing. By, by the way, I got a, a, a listener writing in saying, Continental Europe has the gall to judge the U.S. They have single-handedly made the Russian situation worse, um, which is a big statement. On the other hand, John, I uh, was there when you interviewed Angela Merkel, uh, so you've talked to her at least once. W what do you think uh, her role I is think, in no, this? Well, I think, I think she, she, looks, she looks less good than she did. Um, it's quite interesting. There's an old of um, a political sore about all political careers end in failure. And, and Angela Merkel seemed to be the great exception to that. The fact that this crisis has come so soon after she's left, I think you know, that there are things that, that she did that look much more questionable. The whole sort of um, the, the policy, which I think your, um, the, the listener who was complaining was pointing out, was that Europe was sort of doing a bit of both kind of flirting with Ukraine whilst not actually doing anything really solid to help it. And then building Nord Stream 2. And then the other gigantic, she built Nord Stream 2, and then she also turned off the nuclear power. Yeah. And so Germany is now completely um, held hostage to that. So I think she was, she, I think a great woman though she was, she looks slightly less great now than she did then. I wonder what you think, John, about the, uh, the sanctions on the one hand um, seem to be pushing uh, Beijing even closer to Moscow. And 
not very n- not very helpful to the dollar um, as we see the Saudis ask the Chinese that they can sell them oil and UN. But on the other hand, uh, we're just destroying the sanctity of private property, right? If you're rich and you happen to be from Russia, we're going to take away all your stuff, and there's no due process. Does that? I do, yeah, I do. I, that, that, well, two things on that. One, I think the on the firstly on the on the Chinese stuff, I think that, that China is China seemed to be sort of pretty okay with what Putin was doing. As the full kind of blood and horror of it is coming through, they seem to be reversing a bit. But I do think whatever happens in the short term, whatever Xi decides to do about Putin, I think that's still a little bit of an open question. I think there's no doubt that Xi and the kind of wolf pack around him are going to say, look, this is, whether we like it or not, the economy is splitting to different blocks. If we want to protect, live out, we, we, we want to grab our bit and stay self-sufficient within that bit. I think that's part one. I think in terms of the oligarchs, and what we're doing to private property, yeah, I am a little bit nervous about that, I'll be honest. Um, against that, it is, this is a, um, you know, Russia is a, it, it's not the same as um, dispossessing uh, American billionaires who at different times all of us have been very annoyed with. Uh, it, 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 this is a much more hand-in-glove relationship with government. Um, you know, most of these people are rich because they've been given natural resources by the government, right. and the level of um, interaction between these people and the Kremlin is much, much higher. That's part one, and part two. Whatever the many things um, that we that we accuse American billionaires of, you don't accuse them of going into factories and shooting people. Right. Um, which, again, John, what is the will restrict me from pointing out which particular ones fit in that category? But there are, you know, there are a number of these oligarchs are not, are not by any measure pleasant people. John, what is the role of the UK going forward, do you believe? I think the UK is in a, um, I think in terms of Russia, they have, they have tried to catch up. Um, London is found is definitely no longer as easy as it used to be. Even Chelsea has passed the football club, has passed across. Um, I think more generally, for the UK, this, I think, begins to make a bit of a, a sort of mockery out of Brexit. And I'm not... I'm one of those people who's tried to move on from Brexit. But if this does push forward the idea of trade blocks developing in different zones, well, Britain is rather kind of stuck in the middle. Um, you know, we, we so far Britain's attempts to try and get a trade deal with America have almost completely failed. Um, and there's still the rather strange argument, strange policy of paying more attention to arguing with the French about fishery rights bracket. Um, revenue of, I think it's $700 million a year, £700 million a year, um, it's spending more time on that than the City of London brackets, $168 billion a year, um, is it, coming home to roost. The, the, there is no, the, the British have not endeared themselves to the Europeans. Um, and, and it was noticeable, I was in Paris the week before last, and even there, talking to French officials, you know, I wondered whether the general coming together of the West and the Ukraine is extended to that particular relationship. And the answer was a very firm no. It does seem the music will stop and um, the UK doesn't necessarily have a chair right now. I wonder, you know, after reading your piece, uh, I was thinking about uh, a great um, 
uh, piece of reporting that BN did a couple of days ago. I can't remember who else wrote, but Amory Horton was one of the writers of the uh, of the piece on the Biden administration reaching out again to Mohammed bin Salman. And this is like such an important issue because the whole world reserve currency status is so anchored in oil, you know, barrels priced in dollars. And um, they've been such an important foothold for the U.S. in the Middle East, the Saudis. Uh, but we're not happy with them right now because of uh, the, you know, dismantling of Jamal Khashoggi and um, dismembering, I should say, and their actions in Yemen. Uh, the question is, what do we do? Do they end up with the autocrat block? Do they end up with us, where I guess they still are, but that relationship is tenuous. What what happens to the Saudis? My guess is they end up with us, but I, I, it, it, I think you have put your finger on the problems at the moment. Um, that they, you know, that there is still very obviously it's the monarchy. There are elements of autocracy there. Part one, and secondly, they have on the issue of natural resources, they they often get pushed back um, towards dealing with the Russians. Or it has to be said, a lot of recent OPEC history has been arguments between the Saudis and the Russians. So it's not an easy relationship. I mean, I do, yes, I do think they are one of those those powers out there. And it does cause, I think, um, problems for the Saudis. It gives them a short-term bonus. The price of oil has rocketed up, and that's given them a chance. But it has also, I think, greatly accentuated the desire of other places around the world to wean themselves off um, oil and gas oil particularly um, right. and that you can see that already america has a much freer hand than than other parts of the world because america doesn't have to rely on on oil from other places so that is all you know that that's been a useful and very kind of um and i think other people will follow that if you compare where the united states is because of what's happened in ukraine and where germany is for all the reasons you just pointed out america has much greater freedom to act i think america relies on one percent russian oil Germany relies on an enormous amount of Russian gas, as just to you know, point out, it's not just the Germans. Places like Poland, which historically um, tend to take a rather much more aggressive attitude, recent history, much more aggressive attitude to the, to the Russians than, than the Germans have done, they are even more dependent on, the, on, on Russian gas. All right, John, that is great stuff. Thank you very much <clears throat> for taking the time. John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, joining us with his Big Take story today, uh, along with Adrian Wooldridge. You can find that at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take and uh, NI space Big Take Go. All right, let's check in with Laureen Gilbert. Laureen is founder and CEO of Wealthwise Financial Services, joining us from uh, sunny California, I believe. Laureen, what are you telling your clients here who may be concerned about rising interest rates, inflation, geopolitics? What are you telling them these days? Good morning. Well, I say I certainly understand. Uh, everybody's feeling pain at the pump. Everybody feels the pain at the grocery store. And so the consumer is starting to feel it, and that means investors are feeling it as well. So it's a, it's a time when there's so much uncertainty that being a, a little bit risk-off and much more defensive makes sense. That doesn't mean uh, putting everything in cash, but it certainly means pulling in maybe a little bit of cash and leaning towards the more conservative areas of the market. So do investors get 
uh, do they lean towards preserving capital here rather than looking for returns? I think what we're talking to our clients about is looking for areas of the market that um, are value-oriented, that, uh, you know, no matter what happens, you know, certainly with inflation still being an issue and rising rates being an issue, um, you don't want an overweight in fixed income uh, where, you know, you're not going to keep up with inflation. And, of course, we see that ag is quite negative year to date. So we still like stocks, like equities in the portfolios, but uh, like I said, leaning more conservatively uh, towards the value tilt is what I would say, dividend-paying stocks uh, that can keep investors comfortable that they are receiving those dividends. Lorraine, a lot of folks these days are saying it is a stock picker's market. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so, you know, the markets go in swings from passive investing to active investing. And we've been saying for a while that it's going to be a stock picker's market, which we've seen that certainly year to date where uh, active managers have outperformed the S&P 500 to the highest that it's been since 2008 as far as outperformance. And we expect that to continue. Um, So, uh, you know, that's where we can help investors looking for those opportunities and seeing the areas that uh, we do see as opportunities, like I said, in the value part, um, more so than the growth part of the market. A lot of people have been saying, uh, have been using the acronym TINA to describe Mm -hmm. stocks. There's no alternative. And I keep looking back at this uh, chart on the Bloomberg at 6506, Paul, if you want to check it out, uh, G hashtag BTV 6506. And it shows fixed income performance globally over this quarter. It's been horrendous. Horrendous. I mean, the Bloomberg Treasuries that. Index mm-hmm. has been the worst, perfor- had the worst performing quarter of my lifetime. And I'm not young. So, and it's made it difficult for investors who are in, you know, let's say a moderate portfolio of 60% equities, 40% fixed income. This is exactly what I wanted uh, to ask you about, especially yeah. people who are retiring or getting close, you know. I mean, how hard has it been and what do they do now? It's been very difficult. And so for investors, we're talking a lot about uh, looking at areas of the market, like I said, the value stocks that pay dividends and then municipal bonds, which – has not also not been stellar year to date. However, we know that those coupon payments are coming. And, um, you know, when it comes to being conservative, first there's treasuries, then there's munis. So uh, municipal bonds and value stocks uh, right now are still areas that we like quite a bit. Do your clients call you up, Loreen, and say, and say, I need exposure to crypto? Does that happen? Is that happening to you? <laughs> Uh, We certainly get asked the question quite a bit, and uh, I'll tell you right now with the with the Federal Reserve, uh, with with Treasury, with our with the United States of America looking at digital currency, I think that the wait and see is absolutely important because it could be a zero sum game where. uh, Digital currencies are established by central banks all over the world. China, United States, and others. And I think that that is going to become a standard. Uh, and so I would say to investors uh, to to look to the central banks because I don't see central banks allowing uh, truly other currencies that are in the private sector. All right. 
Thanks so much for joining us, Lorraine. Great to uh, get some time with you and uh, really appreciate your insight. Lorraine Gilbert there, founder and CEO of Wealthwise Financial Services, talking to us out of Laguna Beach, California. All right, ESG, Environmental Social Governance. It is a big factor, a growing factor in investors' uh, minds these days. One of the challenges is incorporating ESG analysis into your securities analysis is the data ain't that great. And we bring in Wes Bricker, Vice Chair, U.S. Trust Solutions Co-Leader at PwC. Wes, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, you know, when people do their financial analysis and they go to the FA page on the Bloomberg Terminal, there's lots of income statement, balance sheets, cash flow statements, and stuff like that. And we do have an ESG tab there where Bloomberg brings together a lot of ESG data for uh, our users. But a lot of folks are saying, just generally speaking, there's not enough good data to do ESG analysis. What's going on there? Well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to be with you, uh, Matt and Paul. Um, it, he, here's, here's what we see. Uh, the SEC is focused on um, what's happening in the marketplace, and, and investors are asking for more information, more segmentation of important information about the risks. I, I call them pre-financial risks, whether it's carbon, whether it's um, how my workforce is coming together and innovating and collaborating. Maybe it's how I'm providing access to uh, customers or potential customers into uh, my platform. All of that comes together uh, ahead of the financial effects. And, and so as you look at the financial content, the SEC uh, just recently uh, this week uh, looked at the element of carbon and the climate and uh, proposed new rules which require more uh, information in the financial statements, in the footnotes about the effect of climate on the financials so that investors can find more relevant uh, information in order to conduct their analysis. Kind of a, isn't this kind of a moving target um, in a sense, Wes, because, you know, last year in front of Congress, all the Wall Street um, CEOs were lambasted for lending money to oil producers as if, you know, they were just unbelievable sinners, just this close to breaking the law by supporting oil producers. And now, um, as the price of crude goes to 140, everybody's like, why aren't they producing more? Uh, even the Biden administration is like, damn it, we gave them 9,000 leases. They need to use them. So, you know, all of a sudden, it's like their national duty to be pulling more oil out of the ground. How does that jibe with an ESG world that is at all, you know, static? Sure. It's a great question. It's clear we need energy. Any any uh, developed economy needs energy, needs a diversified set of energy sources. What this proposal is about it is how do you really assess the impact of something like climate, which is also changing, um, what's the impact on the financials? And, and so the, the way the, the information uh, is proposed to be uh, presented here is you take something like a climate risk and then model it through the business that you're in, the prospects that you have, the performance over time, and uh, the milestones, what would be the financial impact? on a gross basis before you start offsetting or, or, or figuring in 
the management actions that that might be relevant. Maybe maybe you'll buy carbon offsets. Maybe you'll change a business process. Maybe you'll uh, alter a product mix. It, all of that analysis today it is provided in bits and pieces. Some of it's sitting on corporate websites in a sustainability report. Maybe some of it's in an investor survey on a bilateral basis between a company and their capital providers. What the SEC is saying, well, let's set a mandatory bar for all companies that enables the marketplace to see more consistent, comparable, and uh, decision-useful information to help investors really understand where companies are and the nature of risks that impact performance over time. Wes, what do you think of the pushback that uh, there is out there that some folks are saying, hey, the SEC is overreaching here. They're trying to dictate climate policy. Um, what about that kind of pushback? What's your sense? There's, um, there's, there's really a, a robust dialogue about a, a couple of big concepts. Uh, the economy, social policy, that's traditionally Congress, right? That's, that's an important place for Congress. The SEC is focused on disclosure policy uh, consistent with its mission, which is uh, getting good information into the markets to protect investors so that investors understand uh, the nature of their investment, the risks, the opportunities of it. Uh, companies get the capital that they need in order to operate, grow, compete. And in the middle, we have fair and efficient markets. So, uh, of, of course, there's, there is a continuum between the point where uh, economic policy, social policy hands off uh, into business and, and the way they source capital and uh, convey information through disclosures. I, I'd expect that debate to continue. But, but I guess what, what I would say is uh, the, the SEC, I think, has, has very rightly been focused on uh, the voluntary reporting of, of uh, climate information. Mm, right. They've been focused on concerns about greenwashing, so a lack of confidence in that information. Right. It, and uh, they've they've put a proposal on the table that that business industry groups uh, should rightly uh, reconsider and provide input. All right. Uh, whereas Smart. the proposal at the final stage, and I think it, I I think the SEC uh, got it. Will all right, Wes, good stuff there. Wes Bricker, Vice Chair, U.S. Trust Solutions, co-leader at PwC, talking about ESG, the need for more data, the need for better data. Again, the FA function on the Bloomberg Terminal. How's your ESG? All right, let's talk to Barry Ritholtz. He's a founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, and host of Masters in Business here. Barry, we've had, you know, continued uh, wild several days here, several weeks. We've got a hot war in Europe. Uh, we've got uh, rising interest rates. We've got inflation. Where do we begin? What do you do? How do you look for context? How do you put this all together? So you always have to have a plan. You know, you, the old joke is you, you, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. And it, it really is true. If you're relying on your gut instinct, if you're sort of taking it headline by headline, that's a recipe for disaster. So, uh, you know, if, uh, somebody who says, my plan is that at the end of 2022, I'm pulling this money out of the market and buying a house or paying for a kid's college, hey, those folks should really have been throttling back their 
um, risk exposure. But for the average investor who's got a timeline that's not measured in months but is years off in the future or even decades off in the future, you know, what happens in 2020 or 2022 isn't relevant to to when they're going to need the money. So have a plan, stick with it, and, and stay long-term. Uh, don't get distracted by the barrage of news each day. You know the Mike Tyson quote? I think it's Mike Tyson. Sure. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah, no, that's... Can I tell you, that's absolutely true. And and it's funny because, you know, the other day I was talking to Tom Keene and, and we and, and uh, Lisa Bromwitz and, and Kaylee, and the conversation was, well, why shouldn't, you know, you follow Muhammad Alarian's advice and go risk off and, and move out? And, and the answer is, uh, it's an easy decision to hit the sell button, but when do you buy? How do you decide time when to buy? And I made the argument that it's really, really challenging to get back in. And I got an email from an advisor who said, I work with a lot of clients. I'm simpatico with your view. I only wish there was some data to back it up. So I went out and did some research. There was a recent study. Uh, I love this title. Quote, when do investors freak out? Machine learning predictions of panic selling. And to me, the most shocking data point in the study is that investors who panic sell, 31% of them never reinvest in risky assets. They panic out of equities and they're scared uh, from that. And that is very similar to what we saw following 0809. People panicked out of the market in the bottom and failed to get back in in any reasonable period of time. Barry, Masters in Business, your wildly successful podcast. Is it our most popular podcast, by the way? I'll, I'll go there. I, I believe is, so. But, yeah. you know, there are other folks who have podcasts uh, more frequently, and so they might see uh, different numbers. I think it's the most popular long-term and the most popular on a weekly basis, but uh, I, only I know haven't the, seen I the only data. know Masters in Business, uh, of course, Joe and Tracy have odd lots. Yep. Which and, is also very popular. And yes. Joel Weber has trillions. trillions. Yeah. Yep. Who do you got this week? So this week is Samara Cohen. She is BlackRock's chief investment officer for ETFs and index investments. And of the $10 trillion, and I have to repeat that, that's trillion with a T, of the $10 trillion that BlackRock manages, she's responsible for about a third of it. Uh, I think she is in finance the woman woman with the most amount of assets under management. I I, I don't think anyone is even close. Uh, it might be the the CEO of um, Edward Jones, which is about a trillion dollars, and that's a woman. So so she all ETFs all index funds are under her purview at BlackRock. That's a lot of money. How do you get these people, Barry? You always every week have some really big names. Well, you know, 400 episodes and eight years in, it's become a lot easier. In the beginning, it was my friends in Rolodex. But at a certain point, you know, the the I give a lot of credit to Bloomberg Radio and the whole platform we have. It's not just on Spotify and iTunes. It goes out over Bloomberg Radio, XM Satellite, all of the affiliates of Bloomberg. So it gets, in addition to the downloads, it gets a massive audience you know, on AM or FM radio with the group. And and very often, you know, the one thing I hear from the guests more than anything else is 
we really enjoy the opportunity to have an in-depth conversation, yep. not four minutes and then a commercial. A lot of these things are complicated and nuanced. They don't lend themselves to, to the shorter format. Well, we listen. Yep. Good stuff. All right, Barry Ritholtz, thanks so much for joining us. That's your four minutes. Now we'll go to a spot. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion Columns, and again, host of Masters in Business Podcast. I recommend you check that out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.